Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Hannah Elias. In this episode, we have recordings from a recent session of History Acts, a new radical history forum that works as a gathering place for historians and activists. Organizers Stephen Blaney and Guy Beckett host these sessions about once a month at Birkbeck College in London to encourage the exchange of ideas and experiences between two groups that don't often have an opportunity to meet. Their goal is to bring radical historians and contemporary activists together to find new ways for academics to engage with contemporary struggles, to learn from activists, and to see what expertise and institutional resources historians can use to provide active solidarity. History Acts is developed in conjunction with the Raphael Samuel History Center, which is also a partner of History Workshop. In this session, two activists and two historians share their perspectives on the UK's housing crisis. These sessions are wonderfully lively and usually run for about two hours, so we're just sharing some of the contributions offered by the panel of invited speakers in this podcast. If you'd like to take part in a session of History Acts and join in the discussion, please visit their website at www.historyacts.org. Here's the start of a session called History Acts 05, Housing for All, featuring Eva and Millie from Hackney Digs, a private renter support and campaign group. In the second half, you'll hear contributions from Professor Jerry White and Dr. Florence Sutcliffe-Braithwaite. Welcome to History Acts 05, Home for All. Um, I'll let everyone introduce themselves. Uh, the structure of the event is that the activists will speak first for about um, 10 or 15 minutes, and then we'll pass on to the historians who will respond. And then the bulk of the session will be group discussion, particularly focused on um, how history can learn from activism, what it can contribute to activism, and what, you know, with a focus on what possible outcomes can come out of these uh, History Acts meetings. So, um, so yeah, I'll pass on to Eva and Millie from Hackney Dicks to introduce themselves and start us off. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm Eva and I'm Millie. <laughs> so, Diggs started in 2011 and Diggs is, um, Diggs, our full name, it's not an acronym, it's just the name, um, and it's uh, Diggs Hackney Private Renters and we're organising for change in the private rental sector. It started just when a group of, just by like a small group of private renters. Like private renters are people who don't own their house and don't ha- and don't aren't in the social housing sector who rent from a private landlord. And it came out of a group of people kind of having the realization that this was potentially how they were going to live was like in the private rental sector and the fact that they might not. It might, they might not ever stop being in the private sector, but there is no organi- there, at that time there was very very little organising around a sector which is so insecure. It's uh, it's unbelievable. Um, so that's how Diggs died. I got involved in Diggs in 2013 um, when I moved to Hackney with my with my son and kind of yeah, it was just this realisation like wow, I want to start to build a home for my son and. All I've got is these 12-month tenancies and about, you know, like about two or three months before the tenancy comes up every year, you start to go, is this it? Am I going to have to move? Um, so 
that's why I got involved because it felt really, really important to start to like have these conversations. And when I joined in 2013, at that time, almost nobody was was talking about it. But within a few months, it started to the the momentum started to build and people started to to talk about this and people are starting to understand. But partly that's because organisations and groups have started to start to say like this has to this has to change. And especially with uh, the cap on local housing allowance and things like that, even though they've they've essentially privatised social housing, but it's not even talked about in those, in those terms. It's, talk, you know, it's, it's like the idea, there's still, it's, even now, it, there's still people think that, oh, but you'll get out of it at some point, so don't worry about it too much. Like, that's the, still the mainstream discourse. But, you know, if you're paying, especially in a city like London, but across the country, if you're paying, like, a certain amount of rent, there's no way. And also, you know, like, now you can't get on, because of, again, because of uh, the cap on housing benefit and those sorts of things have meant that the rate of homelessness has ever increased so the pressure on councils has ever increased so you cannot it also cannot get on a social housing list unless you become unless you become homeless unless you get evicted from your flat you have a bailiff you know and you've gone through the whole process of like and then and then you have you basically hack the council you have to turn up with your note from the bailiffs and that is the only way that you will get on any kind of housing list and even then you will then have to wait an indefinite amount of time before you get an alternative so like yeah some people like in especially in the right like to say it's a choice you know it's good that it's flexible because it's a choice but i don't feel very much choice about it um so digs as an organization we we meet once a month and we do support work um not not case it's, it's not case work because we don't have the capacity for that but support so we do mutual we meet and we do mutual support and people come and we talk about how we can help each other and a lot of that is actually emotional support just to like have a space where you can come and talk about what's happening in your housing situation just so that you are strong enough to to then go out and um deal with it we try and organize on a in a community organizing way um, which means that we do one-to-ones, we, d- we talk to each other and we uh, reach out to, to other groups um, and we are part of, and, then we, and we are also part of a wider network of housing within, um, the, called, called the Radical Housing Network which is, has lots and lots of um, different, different groups and I think, yeah, and then in terms of our strategies and tactics, we have uh, we tried. We've, we've started like a number of different campaigns. The campaign that we are currently running is called Yes DSS, because we, a few of our members were experiencing the fact that you cannot like that they were getting evicted from their houses and they were trying to find somewhere else to live and they were just coming up again and again. Basically, if you are on housing benefit and you are trying to find somewhere to rent, you get the phone put down on you. That's it. You don't. You don't get. A, you know. You can't even get a. You can't even start a conversation with people. It doesn't matter if you've got proof that you've been paying your rent for the last six years, and it doesn't matter if you know, like, you have a UK guarantor. You know, unless and especially like, say, for my for myself, for example, as a single income family, I can't live in a shared house and find a, find a small room that's that's affordable. I require a flat, and a flat costs, you know, like in order to be pay, able to pay for that without housing benefit. I would need to be earning about 35 grand a year and I have a small child so it's quite hard for me to work uh, like 40 hours a week and it's and also I'm at the beginning of my like earning capacity there are a whole host of reasons why I I need 
I pers- this is my personal situation, but I would call my house benefit, but yeah, people just could not have access. So the Yes DSS campaign is around, we, we are, we talk, we're in conversation with the council, but we're also putting pressure on uh, local letting agents to partly to raise awareness of this, because a lot of people don't even, aren't even really aware. I think like Yes DSS is just, a f- uh, No DSS is just a phrase that gets written on the bottom of like, or uh, adverts for housing. I think lots of people don't even know what that means. And like, so the letting agents, they know what they're doing, but a lot of houses, especially in London, are like from landlords who might have only have one or two properties, maybe they're advertising them themselves, and even those say no housing benefit, no DSS on the bottom of it. DSS stands for Department of Social Services, which is entirely defunct and non-existent and not a real thing, so it's also um, slightly ironic, really. Um, yeah, so that's like an ongoing... Um, an ongoing thing that we are that we're doing in terms of um, things campaigns as well that we have um, that we have won. We was um, last year. What well, we have we have. I won't say it's a good relationship with the with Hackney Council, but we have a relationship with Hackney Council, which means that we have quite regular meetings with them, and we are able to put pressure on them. And like through those conversations, it means that they feel that they they should listen to us, which is. Um, which is great, and there was they tried to do, it was a PSPO, which stands for pub. I can't remember what PSPO stands for, but off the top of my head. But what it meant was what part of it was that they were trying to the, essentially they were trying to criminalise rough sleeping in the mm-hmm. borough, and they were going to find people for rough sleeping. They were going to find people for, for begging in the street and, and for urination. And we start we started a started a campaign which. Which meant, and the council backed backed out of that. We put a lot, of, we put a lot of pressure on them that we were going to have. We organised a demonstration, which within like two, like a week, like two thousand people said they were going to come to this demonstration outside the town hall, and the council crapped themselves and said, "Okay, we won't do that." Um, what's quite scary about that? This is slightly aside. Is the woman who put that in place that that in place was a woman called Sophie Linden, who now is like head of policing in the. I not actually don't know what she is, but she's something quite high up in policing in the Greater London Authority under Sadiq Khan. So watch out. She's quite a scary lady. Um, yeah. So that's sort of about Dick. I'm going to hand over to Millie. Okay. So we decided that everyone would fantastically introduce Diggs and then I would talk about um, a bit about the housing crisis and a bit about this question about. Um, how can historians, uh, what was it the historians were supposed to do? Uh, contribute or something? Yeah. Contribute, right, right, right. History contribute. slash historians right, right. contribute to your campaign. Okay, so I've written a bit about that. So so there's been a lot of changes to to um, how people are living, which are often not reflected in like the sort of general popularly accepted ideas about housing. So like you were talking about people saying, oh, don't worry, you'll get something. Um, so one thing is that, I mean, if you just read the papers, you would think that 99% of people live in accommodation or are just about to buy a house, because one thing is that um, the public debate about housing is, is often, you know, it's, it's, it's all about property. It's not about homes. It's not about need. It's not about shelter. <coughs> homes that are warm, safe, with enough bedrooms. It's, it's about probably getting on the property ladder. And... Um, so one thing I think where what could be the role of historians is a lot a lot of the way that the housing crisis has been talked about, a lot of things are presented as this is normal, this is the way it is, this is just what it's like. But actually, the reason why things are so bad is because of choices 
that political choices that have been made when other choices could have been made. So people with the power to do that have decided that it's okay that um, the numbers of people who are sleeping is rising massively. That's all right. It's all right that um, the 33% of people in private rent accommodation now have, are living with children, households with children. And um, child poverty is very high in both the private rented accommodation and also in social housing in London at the moment. And, and not really in um, an occupation. It's, when I looked at the thing about what is the housing crisis, it seems to be very much it's a crisis of tenants, very much more so. Um, a few years ago in Spain, there was a massive movement about against evictions, and a lot of that was repositions of people who were trying to buy their homes and then getting repossessed and evicted. And at the moment, that is really low. So, right, I've got another graph. I hope. Is it? Um, yeah. So the, the blue line is um, mortgage repositions. You can see low and decreasing. In fact, you could call that a, so one of the lowest it's been. The red line is tenants being evicted, landlord positions. You can see the peak here, but still much higher than preceding years. So, so basically what I was looking at with what, what could be the role of historians is a lot of these things that are presented as it's just the way it is. That it doesn't have to be like that, but these decisions have been made that these, these things are all okay as long as there is lots of money being made in property. That it doesn't matter about child poverty, about the rates of repositions, about what happens. You know, rates of, of illness, you know, illness of children in, in in unhealthy accommodation, these things, that's fine as long as lots of money's being made, yeah? So, so what, so, um, so I, I looked at loads of things, um, a lot of, I got a lot of facts from this thing, there's this Lord Mayor's report about housing, and well, that's where I got all the graphs from, them, <laughs> and, um, but it's really interesting. So, one thing is this idea of the, in this country, you know, there's a massive imbalance of the power between landlords and tenants. It's not like it's not always been like that, and it's not like that everywhere. But this is seen as just natural. Oh, if you own property, it's just like it's nature. The landlords are the sharks, and the tenants are the little baby seals, or something. <laughs> and, and as if oh, this is just the way it is in the wild, you know. Well, you know, in fact, like the, the um, private rental sector was deregulated by various housing acts. Um, bef at a certain point, there were more council tenants in London than private tenants. And there was this idea that, oh yeah, we need to deregulate the private sector to like get it all moving, you know, shake it up, it's a bit stagnant. And uh, so that, that was like, you know, a choice that was made. And then at the moment there's a big thing in, in the press and from politicians and so on about the, the high housing benefit bill and this is blamed on, oh, there's too many poor people living in uh, <coughs> in houses that are too big for them, costing the country all this money. Whereas in fact, like, why, why is there a huge housing benefit bill? Because, because of this deregulation of the, of the private sector, that was, that was like a choice that was made. And, um, and now he's, he's being blamed on, on, on private tenants who didn't make that decision, didn't have any choice. A lot of people probably weren't born when it was made, you know. That, um, 
So another thing is this idea about London. A lot of people talking now about as if London is only for young professionals who don't yet have children, you know, and poor people who are trying to live in London. What well, this is, you're being silly, you're being unrealistic, you should move out of London. Like, what, why are these people trying to live in London? What are they doing here? And, um, you know, this has always been like a really working class city. And there's another thing, the role of historians is to, you know, bring out that history. You know, um, 20, a bit more than 20 years, 25 years ago, the idea of like aspirational people was to move out of London. London was seen as a bit sort of sordid, you know. I mean, that's also lots of people moved here for that reason as well. But, that's <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, London was seen as not very, you know, nice in that way. Like, and um, I feel like now that the middle classes want to return to the inner city, it's a bit like, thanks for looking after it for us now, handing the keys, you know? Like, <laughs> um, so, what would, I think one thing really useful for that historians could look at is like, yeah, these different changes in, in the law that have happened, different housing acts about rent controls, about when assured tenancies went to assured shorthold tenancies, such as getting rid of the security of tenure for private tenants, obviously right to buy, um, squatting being made illegal in residential properties, um, seeing as the squatters on here, I'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, often I've, a lot of the, so a lot of the sort of the, his, the people's history of London is really like erased, really, really erased. And one thing is, squatting is often seen as this thing that was for like, kids mucking about, maybe there's often this idea of like privileged kids, you know, there's people always tell this story about some guy who turned out to be some count from Italy or something, but I never met him anyway. I, I think he's made up. But whereas actually squatting was huge numbers of people squatted in London, it, thousands and thousands of people, all sorts of people in all sorts of situations. Loads of um loads of social changes came out of the squatting movement that um when one bit of my family first moved to London from Glasgow, they they separated families into hostels. They put them, women and children in family hostels and the men in separate hostels and they were not allowed to stay together. And there were, there were huge campaigns against it. The, the fathers did sit-ins in the hostels demanding to be allowed to stay with their families and look after them. And the hostels movement was really involved in the, squatting, the early squatting movement of the late 60s. And this is really erased, it's not, and a lot of the struggles around council housing and um, women's refugees, a lot of them were originally set up in squats, like people would squat buildings and then, you know, clean it, get it ready and then tell people, you know, to come. Um, people think as if the women's refugees were just like one day just given by the government, it's not true, it was, it was fought for. Okay, that was Eva and Millie from Hackney Digs. Next, the historians across the table offered their perspectives on the history of the housing crisis. First, Jerry White. He is a professor of modern London history at Birkbeck, who has been researching and writing London history since the mid-1970s. Among his many published works is London in the 20th Century, A City and Its People. His most recent book, Mansions of Misery, a biography of the Marshalsea Debtors' Prison, was published in October 2016. I teach London history here at Birkbeck, and I've been doing that um, for about the last eight years. But um, I should say that I had a, another existence before that, and I used to be chief executive of Hackney Council until 
from 1989 to 1985, and I was before that. No one told us that. That's why the anarchists didn't turn up. And um, uh, and I, I was head of environmental health there too, from 84 to 87. But I'm actually going to be talking about, or at least start at talking about an earlier time because I started my career in local government um, once I qualified as a public health inspector in Islington, and I went there to work in September 1970 um, as a housing inspector. I mean, as a public health inspector, they're called environmental health officers now, but I was, my job was housing. And I remember um, getting the job in Islington. Any, I mean, any qualified public health inspector could get a job there because there were so many vacancies. And uh, the chief officer took me to the window which was of the department, which was then in Upper Street, and he looked out of the window and he said, that's why we're paying you so much. And he pointed across at Florence Street, where I imagine now the houses are all worth about five million pounds, but then they were all multi-occupied. Um, and he was, he was quite right. I mean, I was 21 and I was earning more. That was my first job, real job. And I was earning more than my father who'd worked all his life in uh, different, uh, different things that, uh, he, that, than he was earning at the time. But my districts were in Holloway, Finsbury Park, Highbury, Essex Road. I moved around the borough. And really the great problem at that point was three, four, five-storey houses in multiple occupation, usually let out by the floor or let out by the room. I did a, a bit of slum clearance around the Hoxton border of Islington, around the Regent's Canal, but in the 1970s, there was very little slum clearance going on. Really, all of that had uh, been done, really, by the time that I, I got there. In 1971, Islington, astonishing as it may seem, had the lowest proportion of households with exclusive use of a bath or shower. That was 56%. So 45% or 44% lacked exclusive use of a bath or shower. On some streets in my district, there were whole streets where there was no bath at all. Um, part of the context here was, too, that um, this was in the heyday, I think, of gentrification. I mean, gentrification had been going on in Islington right through the 1960s. Uh, but in my time, gentrification, the winkling out of private sector tenants, as it was called, um, population loss, which had really set in after the Second World War, and where um, Islington was losing population as the whole of inner London was, a considerable amount of that, I think, was white flight from you know migrants moving in, so that the population of London, which had been 8.6, 8.7 million in 1939, reached 6.3, 6.4 million in 1983. I mean, it lost you know a quarter of its population. Um, from 1973, and particularly from 1974, I led programs of area municipalization. I mean, f my first job was to enforce basic standards against private landlords. Um, but uh, in my day, the council had lost patience with private landlords, and I was working on a strategy to buy them out compulsorily. And so, first of all, in Grosvenor Avenue, but then uh, Highbury. I don't know if anybody knows Islington here. But then subsequently in um, housing action areas, uh, I, I led 
the whole sort of municipalization program at compulsory purchase orders. Um, taking houses away from private landlords, many of whom were absentee landlords, but some of whom were resident landlords at this stage. And, you know, looking back on it, um, I was taking away from uh, ethnic minority resident landlords who were letting out floor by floor or even room by room, properties that they couldn't afford to do up. I mean, this was their way into London and London housing. And I don't know if you've ever come across a book called The Housing Lark by Sam Salvon, who's a West Caribbean writer, a great London novelist, uh, called The Housing Lark in 1965, I think. And it's about this, you know, the way that... Afro-Caribbean landlords and others are moving into the London housing market by renting out, exploiting, if you like, their fellow migrants, but as a way into the London housing scene. It was at this time, too, in the 1970s that I began to interest myself in the history of London housing, and I wrote a book called Rothschild Buildings, which was about an East End tenement block, and then a, a book called The Worst Street in North London, which was about a place called Campbell Road, Islington, which was knocked down in the 1950s as a slum clearance area. Anyway, really, the hey my sort of heyday in terms of municipalisation was very short-lived, 1973 to 1976. 1976, the IMF cuts and the Labour government began to claw money back from capital expenditure in local authorities, and then really the clamp came down with the first Thatcher government from 1979. But even so, I mean, I wrote this about housing in London. I mean, housing in London had been the key problem. When I was in Islington in 1971, housing conditions in Islington had never been better. Right? They were still as shockingly bad as I've described them. They'd never been better. And I uh, wrote about this in a book called London, the 20th Century. And this is how I describe things. At the, I mean, from what I considered at that point, writing at the end of the 90s, to be pretty much a success story. By 1991, I wrote, 97% of households in inner London had the exclusive use of a bath or shower and WC. Just one in 20 had to live at a density greater than one person per room. It had been over one in six in 1961. And if you take it back further, in 1901, there were 325,000 people living at a density of three per room in inner London. I mean, everything is worse the farther you go back in terms of uh, housing conditions. Apart from now, and I'll come back to the present moment in a minute. Um, in five London boroughs, including Tower Hamlets and Southwark, the proportion of households with central heating exceeded the proportion in Greater London and the inner home counties. That was 82%. By far and away the most prosperous population in Britain. And just 0.7% of dwellings in Greater London were shared by more than one household. Now that was the position in 91. And I made the caveat in 1998 or so when I was writing this that there were two really difficult caveats which had to be said about this position. One was the declining quality of housing on council estates in particular because they'd been badly built in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And secondly, the increase in family homelessness because of the shortage of accommodation combined, combined really with population pressure in London so that the, the low point of population, which was the mid-80s, uh, that had reversed from the mid-80s onwards, largely through immigration. 
and that uh, that's both from you know within the nation and outside, and with a declining uh, building program for social housing because of you know Thatcher and then post Thatcher, um, family homelessness had begun to increase even as I was writing in 1998. Now, what I had not appreciated was really the extent to which this pretty rosy picture at the end of the 90s, where I think you know you could arguably claim that London had the best housed population of any metropolis in the world had quickly went into reverse over the last 20 years. And the key elements in that, it seems to me, that um, the stock existing in the social housing sector declined further in quality. I know some, you know, a lot of rebuilding of estates and so on, but in general, I think that still uh, remains to be the case. New building slowed even further. The population pressures in London in the 21st century have become more reminiscent of the 19th century than the 20th. Um, the, the rise in population in London before the Second World War was almost entirely, well, it was entirely a rise in outer London. Inner London was losing population. Um, after the Second World War, the whole of London lost people you know, hugely. Uh, now that is completely reversed, and we're back to the position that we were in terms of the numbers of people in London in 1939. I mean, that's been a reverse that, I must confess, at the end of the 1990s, I never saw happening. And it happened very quickly. Um, the owner occupation, which was you know, largely the sort of result of the gentrification um, of the 60s and 70s, is now, of course, unaffordable, utterly unaffordable by all except the extremely well-off. And the poor, and indeed, the middle classes have been priced out of London. I've got three adult children living in London. Only one of them has, you know, their own, can afford their own house. Um, and the others are all in the private rented sector. And something I thought I'd never see, the private rented sector has reinvented itself and become, and has resurrected itself. I thought, you know, it had gone, frankly. And it, it's resurrected itself with all of the factors of irresponsibility, profiteering, and, you know, <coughs> evil exploitation of tenants that I saw in my day, in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, the, the house in multiple occupation seems to have become resurrected. Uh, and the, there are absolutely inadequate controls over the private rented sector, far worse than in my day. It's much more difficult now to enforce basic standards against private landlords than it was in my day. Compulsory acquisition is no longer, I think, on the agenda. And the, uh, you know, the pendulum swung so far in favor of the market in private rented housing that really enforcement has been made far more difficult. I, I don't speak from uh, hard knowledge now, but this is what I, I've picked up from people who are working with this day to day now. And you've got the added complication and ghastly position that, um, you know, there are inadequate controls. Well, there are no controls on rent, but there are inadequate controls on um, how people, you know, benefit reduction means that people can't afford the rents they're being charged. And I do think that although crisis is an overused word, what seems to have happened, particularly in the last 10 or 12 years, 
um, has brought about an extraordinary crisis in London housing against the trend, certainly the trend of London housing after the Second World War and right through to the end of the 1990s. Um, now, you know, remedies, who knows, but it seems to me that something needs to be done to release councils to build again, and there needs to be effective consumer protection for private rented tenants, including the power to compulsorily purchase landlords who aren't doing their job. We'll leave Jerry White there and turn to Dr. Florence Sutcliffe-Braithwaite, a historian of modern Britain at UCL. She's currently working on squatting in post-war London and on women's activism during the minor strike of 1984 to 1985. She has published work on Thatcher, New Labour, and the 1970s in Historical Journal, 20th Century British History, and elsewhere. Just a warning, there's some clicking and rustling noise on this part of the recording, but you can still hear Florence just fine. Here she is. Actually, I think one of the kind of big themes of what I was going to talk about in relation to family squatting that I think fits quite interestingly with, with the work that you guys have been doing is relates to relationships with local government and councils and the difficulty of knowing how to position yourself um, as an activist group of whatever sort in relation to local government. Um, you know, whether or not you want to, to what extent you want to work with them and to what extent you think you need to remain very separate and in opposition and able to criticise. That, I think, is a, a perennial and really important um, kind of theme. So hopefully the, the kind of historical example that I'm going to talk about will, will speak to that a bit. So, um, first of all, just to explain where the family squatting movement kind of came from, First of all, you need to understand the context, the kind of perennial housing shortage and crisis in the, in the quality of housing in London, even in the post-war period where there were major programmes of government investment in housing um, with council house building and also with the creation of whole new towns. In London and in quite a lot of other cities, um, migration from the new Commonwealth um, was a particular source of tensions and a particular pressure on housing. One of the other key things you need to understand um, about London in particular in this period, particularly the, 50, the, the um, 60s and early 70s, is that a lot of local councils, often left-wing in, in the inner city, were wanted to do really big um, redevelopment programs. Um, so it's sort of part of a kind of modernist vision for transforming the inner city, society, often in many ways well-intentioned. But one of the results of this was often that they would buy up large swathes of housing which would then sit empty for quite a long time, often you know, seven, ten years, even though they were basically in workable order because the local councils were trying to put the money together. Um, increasingly, as the 60s and 70s went on, local government was under a lot of pressure. There were cuts from central government. So you've got these properties sitting empty, owned by local councils, when you have increasing pressure and increasing need from families for this housing. So, in the late 1960s, essentially a group of kind of um, 
quite varied activists got together. This is in 1968, they first got together to discuss how they could undertake direct action in housing to tackle um, this shortage of housing available for working class families. The key figures in this group um, were Ron Bailey and Jim Radford. Um, Jim Radford, sort of um, a libertarian. Ron Bailey has lots of different kind of political affiliations. There were also members um, from Solidarity, which is a small libertarian socialist organization, a couple of young liberals. So this quite diverse group of activists got together in 1968 um, to try and come up with a way of taking direct action to tackle this problem. A lot of them were very convinced by this um, sort of developing, emerging ideology that a lot of new social movements of that period um, were very convinced by. That is, people have to take action to organise, um, to improve their own lives. You should not be organising for other people. You should be attempting to enable them to organise for themselves. You can see that kind of same ideology in women's lib, um, for example, at the same time period. So this was a kind of um, really important starting point for Radford, Bailey, many of these people. A lot of them, um, Millie referenced this, had been involved in these campaigns against um, really brutal and inhumane treatment of homeless families in hostels where they were, local authority hostels where they were split up. Families were essentially split up and kind of destroyed. Um, that famously happens at the end of the film, Kathy Come Home, which was really important in the late 60s, got a huge amount of publicity for the new organisation Shelter, which had just been set up at the time, and for housing crisis generally. So this, this group got together, they called themselves the London Squatters Campaign, and their aims, although they didn't explicitly write these down, were first, to improve the immediate situation of inadequately housed families by rehousing them from hostels or slums, and then, and I think this is really interesting, they also had these kind of bigger aims that they hoped would, would kind of come from this smaller aim. So second aim, to spark a mass squatting campaign. Third, to, this is a quote, start an all-out attack on the housing authorities with ordinary people taking action for themselves. And then finally, to radicalise existing community organisations like tenants associations. The first couple of um, actions were designed to get a lot of publicity, so they did a couple of high-profile squats of luxury flats and an empty vicarage um, in Wanstead and Leighton. These were very widely publicised to journalists. But then what they really wanted to start doing was um, finding and squatting families who were inadequately housed um, in properties. And they began to do this in early 1969. Um, at first, they experienced a huge amount of hostility from local councils. So, for example, uh, the council in Redbridge got in um, this infamous bailiff, um, Barry Quartermain, to try and forcibly evict families who were already squatted. It's actually illegal um, at the time. It's obviously now, that's not illegal anymore um, because squatting has now been made a criminal rather than a civil offence if you're squatting in a, a residential building. Councils also did things like destroy the interiors of properties in order to stop people from being able to squat in them. But ultimately, using um, contacts with journalists and, and media coverage, 
um, the London Squatters Campaign did manage to kind of turn the tide and um, get a lot of negative publicity for councils, which ultimately made some councils start to decide that they would have to work with the squatters. So by summer 1969, they were negotiating already with Lewisham Council. And it was in December that year that they moved their first family into a licensed squat. So basically there's an agreement with the local authority that they can squat the property for a certain amount of time. They've got a proper contract. They're paying a small amount of rent. The London Squatters Campaign at that point also took over the... They had the power to evict. That was one of the really controversial things within the movement itself. So as, as the, in the next couple of years, um, the London Squatters Campaign developed into um, what they called the Family Squatting Advisory Service. They started to work in a lot of different boroughs with a lot of different um, local authorities. They got a grant from Shelter to support the different groups working in different boroughs, and they started to, to set up these official squats um, in lots more places. They also did things like they produced a magazine, um, they, ha they had kind of um, model agreements for councils to use. They're basically providing a whole kind of support network for this official squatting. Um, and slowly, as word got out, they started to get people coming to them rather than having to go out and kind of actively recruit working-class families in terrible conditions to, and, and kind of ask them to participate, they were starting to get people getting in touch with them. And some of the kind of descriptions in some of the literature they produced of the, the, the conditions that these people were living in are really, really horrific. Let me just briefly talk about the tensions then, because I think this is a kind of... Um, this is maybe a really interesting um, and important kind of debate which might potentially have parallels today. So one big tension that immediately arose once they started to force local authorities to work with them was that some of the people who had come from a kind of countercultural sort of background within the London Squatters Campaign Family Squatting Advice Service um, were really angry about this. So some of the members of Solidarity um, turned against the London Squatters Campaign by the end of 1969 when they're setting up their first kind of licensed squat because they basically say they've lost sight of those original bigger goals. This is not just uh, a short-term project to try and ameliorate conditions for a few people. It, it always had to be about something bigger, about creating a kind of bigger uprising. So very quickly... Um, uh, this shift in how they're working had caused a, a big ideological rift. And you got Solidarity kind of pamphlets being published, critiquing the movement and saying that um, it had lost sight of its original radical aims and that it had also started to work sort of on behalf of the poor rather than uh, kind of in a way that worked with people and treated them as equals and kind of empowered them. So um, there's a Solidarity pamphlet that said... It is time for the poor and dispossessed to think and act for themselves, and almost in the same breath, they would talk of the squatters installing families. So some of, some of these critiques that were surfacing basically suggested that the people running this movement were not really living up to their goal of working with people rather than on behalf of people. 
they were too close to local authorities and too close to reformist, that would be the term they would always use, organisations like Shelter. And you can see um, sort of similar critiques coming from quite a lot of different places. Spare Rib, the feminist newspaper, for example, was, was levelling similar critiques at the family squatting campaign. So in, an in a society where it's increasingly um, unacceptable to, accept, to expect kind of deferential attitudes from people, um, some within this squatting movement quite quickly were critiquing it for, not, for, for being too hierarchical, um, for not being truly grassroots enough, um, and for, for um, attempting to, to do good. And that's History Act 05, Housing in Crisis. My thanks again to Stephen Blaney and Guy Beckett for their work organizing History Acts. And if you'd like some more information about their upcoming sessions, please do visit www.historyacts.org. Hackney Diggs has a Facebook page that you can support, and you can find it at Hackney Renters on Facebook. As always, you can find out more about us, History Workshop, at historyworkshop.org.uk, and we're also on Twitter at HistoryWO. Until next time.